Okay, James, welcome back to Looking Over Life. We're in part two of our, uh, of our, <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's not, yeah. is it a series when you only have two things? Uh, it's barely a series, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we, maybe we're starting a series and we don't know it. Yeah, possibly. I, I said something in the last episode, uh, that you kind of snorted at, which was that, this episode would be our practical episode. <laughs> you can't really put into practice uh, evidences of something. Yeah. So uh, you had a better word for it. What is it? What is it that we're trying to get at? Uh, mm, I can't remember what I said. I don't know. I think it you was, said it was graspable. Graspable. <laughs> yeah. Um, less, more concrete, possibly. In other words, yeah. what we had before was a bit more abstract, and this is a little bit less abstract. We won't be talking about philosophies um, like materialism or naturalism or theism. Mm-hmm. Uh, there probably won't be just a huge number of isms mentioned mm-hmm. in this episode, so that's going to be a little bit different. So I think the big question from what we or what we want to look at today is is there a God? <laughs> so uh, after a few thousand years, we're going to tackle that question and, and put it to rest once and for all. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what are, I, I'm not sure how we want to dive into this. It, it's such a, it's such a huge uh, ocean of, of a, of a conversation, but what are, how can we get started with what are some of the evidences for a creator Maybe you have to go to what are some of the big um, arguments, perhaps? What is What are some mm-hmm. of the well-known, well-known arguments for and against evidences of a creator? In the last episode, we talked about different ways that faith and science interact. So we talked about conflict, independence, and of course now I'm struggling to think with the others, dialogue and... Um, what was the other one? Synthesis or something like that. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's been a, <laughs> I, yeah, it's been a little while since we recorded that, so I can't remember exactly. <laughs> but one of those at the end, where where you kind of where they're kind of working together, uh, is called natural theology. And I think you probably remember that, mm-hmm. where we can look at. So we look at the Bible and we see, you know, we we learn about God uh, through His words. But then we look at creation, and we can see evidences of a creator. We can see evidence of design, evidence of the way things are made, the way things work together, and it appears that it must have been designed to work in this this certain way. Mm-hmm. That's called natural theology, where in a sense you're looking at creation and you're proving or you're finding evidences for God. And so that's what we'll kind of be looking at today is this natural theology that I we kind of mentioned a little bit. But we didn't spend a lot of time on. And I think this is what the original listener's question was probably asking was, what are evidences for a creator? What are maybe some some reasons that evolution or other other theories about how the universe came into being, how does that work? Or is there evidences against that that make that not quite so plausible? So that's kind of what we'll be talking about. It, it comes down to at least most of what we'll be talking about today is what's called the anthropic principle. Have you heard of the anthropic principle? I mean, I guess you probably have because you've looked at our notes. But yeah. you, so have you have you heard about it before we kind of started down our uh, you know yeah. ten episode series? Yeah, about- I would have I would have heard about it before, but this was definitely. Um- a refresher course for me for sure yeah i don't think it's something that i would have been able to pull out pull off the top of my head um and it's not something yeah like what we want to maybe try to do this morning is give the listener something that they can use when they meet someone in walmart who says there is no god Mm. (laughs) and then they can say well have you thought about this and saying Do you know about the anthropic principle? Might not be the best way, but we have to uh, kind of unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So the, the anthropic principle, if you want to, if you want to kind of reword it a little bit, you can say that it's the fine-tuned universe. 
So the universe is is all around us. It's everything we see and touch. And there are quite a number of evidences, and we're not gonna we're not gonna even get into all of them. There's a really good book called The Privileged Planet by Guillermo Gonzalez and Jay Richards uh, that talks about this whole thing of anthropic principle. And it's also mentioned in The Case for a Creator, although I would say that Privileged Planet goes a bit deeper than, than The Case for a Creator. Um, it kind of lays out some of the different ways that our universe seems uniquely designed for life. And not only does it seem designed for life, it almost seems like we are, as humans on Earth, we are almost perfectly placed to be able to explore <laughs> the creation. Right, right. Like once you start kind of stacking up some of these different evidences, it it gets less and less likely that something happened by chance. So for instance, if you're flipping a coin, uh, what's the chance that you will uh, flip a coin and have it land on heads? 50-50. Sean, you should know this. Yeah, 50%. Um, and then... The next time you flip a coin, what's the chance that it's going to land on heads? Uh, it should still stay 50%. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> um, so if you do that, uh, what will happen is the the percentage or the, or the number of flips that land on, like let's say you flip it uh, 1,000 times, mm-hmm. you'll probably, the number of heads will probably be around 500 Mm-hmm. It might be a little bit above, a little bit below, but it should be in that general range. Right. If you flip it t- 10,000 times, it should keep getting closer and closer to fifty to exactly 50%. Mm-hmm. So when we look at the universe, it's almost like we flipped the coin 100 times and it came up heads mm-hmm. every single time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so w- when you see that sort of thing happening, it seems like it's less the product of chance and more the product of somebody flipping the coin uh, so it lands heads every time, if that makes sense. Right. So the question we're asking with the anthropic principle is, what are the odds? What are the odds that this could all mm-hmm. all work out so it's like perfectly suited for for humans? Yeah, I uh, I wrote an article of uh, a year or so ago talking about. I mean, it was really talking about the anthropic principle and different evidences for creation. And I'm actually pulling a little bit from my notes for that, and I'll probably probably post that article on my blog. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll make sure that there's a link to that in the show notes that you can you can go to that if you'd like to read it. It should take you about maybe ten minutes to read uh, instead of listening to something listening to us blather on for an hour <laughs> or so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or or it could be something that if you you want to refer to later or you want to send somebody to. Mm-hmm. It'll be something that they can read later. So anyway, it's not the best article on this subject, but it uh, kind of condenses everything down to a more concise form. So I kind of want to um, structure our discussion kind of starting with big and going to small. Mm-hmm. So start with start with the universe. Where did the universe come from? Mm-hmm. What about the creation of the universe points toward a creator? And then just kind of getting smaller and smaller. So then zooming into looking at the Earth or the solar system as a whole, what about that? Gives us evidence that it was created. And then zooming in even smaller into to us, to even something like a water molecule, and then eventually ending up with life. So mm-hmm. where did life come from? Where did DNA come from? What are some other evidences for a creator um, all the way down at the molecular level um, with living things. Yeah, that sounds easy enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> One thing I mentioned earlier, I talked about um, ways that the, that the universe was created. I talked about the Big Bang Theory, and I think I mentioned evolution. And I realized as I was saying that, that that wasn't quite right. <laughs> hmm. But I just left it in because I wanted to come back to it. So a lot of times the Big Bang Theory and evolution are talked about as almost the same thing, Mm -hmm. but they're not the same thing. So evolution is this theory about how life 
kind of arose and how it changed and yeah. evolved to get to where we are now. Yeah. To, to to give us the variety of life we have around us, everything from bacteria to humans to trees. Mm-hmm. And so that's evolution. The Big Bang Theory, that is a theory about where the universe came from. Mm-hmm. Now, the one thing that both of these somewhat have in common is they both kind of rely on the thing of there being uh, of the universe being billions of years old. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's kind of how they are kind of overlapped or people think of them as kind of the same thing. They both talk about the universe being billions of years old. And so maybe that's the confusion. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're both trying to, they're both trying to, or maybe they're similar in the way that they have the same idea that life just kind of came out of nothing. One was with a bang. The other was kind of, uh, I don't know, by chance perhaps. Yeah. Well, I would still say the big bang, like the big bang theory doesn't have anything to say about the origin of life. Yeah, that's true. Or how life evolved. Um, It's purely the creation of the universe. Right. The thing that they have in common is they both have the underpinnings of materialism Mm -hmm. that there is nothing other than what is material. What, Mm -hmm is physical. Right. So that's really the underpinning. And maybe that's another reason why they sometimes get confused or they're used as the same way. And we kind of really got into a lot of uh, detail in our last episode about how definitions matter. And Mm -hmm. we get a little bit pedantic about our terms. And that's because if we want to be, to communicate clearly, we need to make sure that we're using terms correctly and we are agreeing on what terms mean. So right. that's why we're kind of doing this. So I first want to address the Big Bang Theory. And I'm going to start with a little bit of a history lesson. And that is that for many, many years, people, yes, people believe that there was, was a creator. Um, people believe in the biblical account. But there was also a number of people, let's say right around the time of Darwin uh, the time of the Enlightenment, which had been the mid to late 1700s and 1800s, they believed that they kind of started moving away from the idea of a creator. They believed that the universe had just always existed. It was eternal. And that was, I guess that's how they got around the idea of a creator. They thought they did. So that's what they believed. Then in the late 1800s, early 1900s, we started getting really good at building really big telescopes. <laughs> yeah. And Edwin Hubble, who is, if that name sounds familiar, it's because the Hubble Space Telescope is named after him. He used the telescope and he looked out and he noticed something with the stars. He noticed that stars seem to be, or, or galaxies specifically, seem to be moving away from us really fast. Mm-hmm. And, well... If 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 all if if everything around us is moving away, what does that tell us? Well, that tells us that that if you kind of zoom or if you kind of rewind time, mm-hmm. you've probably seen slow motion videos where they play it forward in slow motion and then they play it backwards, so everything kind of zooms back right. uh, to the thing that exploded. Sure. So that gave the implication that all matter and energy in the universe were at were created at one place in one time. Mm-hmm. They kind of popped into being. And that was not a very easily accepted idea. And the reason it wasn't quickly accepted was because it seemed to also imply, or it seemed to kind of line up with the biblical kind of creation. One of the astronomers that was kind of making fun of this idea, and I can't remember what his name is at this point, but he, he kind of made fun of the idea and called it the the Big Bang Theory, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because it was used as kind of a joke, making fun of it. But now that's what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, it, so they resisted this idea because it lined up with the creation account in the Bible. But eventually it got to the point where there was so much evidence that the universe was expanding Hence, it must have been closer together and and created at a certain point. And so eventually they had to accept the idea that that was the case. Now, they still 
They still resisted the idea that it was caused by a creator. They then came up with, well, there's different ideas or different uh, theories about how the universe popped into existence, but it's interesting that there is this huge evidence from, from physical creation that showed there must have been a time and place where everything was created, which of course lines up with Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, and then God God created everything. So that was, that was kind of fascinating to learn that, that really something that a lot of times we as Christians will kind of dismiss and say, oh, the Big Bang Theory, whatever. Actually, you could say that the Big Bang Theory gives us evidence for creation. <laughs> right. So it makes me... Um... It makes me think about, I'm not quite sure how to put it into words, but where we can be, we can be overly binary, overly black and white with some of the either terms or, uh, I don't know, yeah, perhaps terms or beliefs mm-hmm. to where, mm-hmm. yeah, we, for example, take the Big Bang Theory, there is evidence, things that can be seen. We could say things that are concrete that mm-hmm. that point to, you're talking about this timeline effect, essentially, that everything was at one point and now is expanding from that point. Mm-hmm. And that really can't be argued with. But I have, I have heard Christians uh, just kind of approach the conversation about Big Bang with someone who says, uh, this is what they believe the creation came from Big Bang because of this evidence. And the Christians just say, no, we're not going to listen. God made it. And just kind of, you know, mm-hmm. close, put their fingers in their ears sort of thing. And yeah. what I'm hearing you say is look at evidence that we see in creation, in the universe, then look at what God's word says and try to figure out how do these two things line up and how. Is that right? Yeah, somewhat, I would say. Um, A lot of times when there is a theory or when scientists come up with something, usually they're not just dreaming. Like it wasn't like they had a had a crazy (laughs) dream. Right. And they woke up and they're like, oh, I'm going to come up with this ridiculous theory that there's no evidence for. Sure. Uh, They there is some there is evidence for their theory or there's things that you could you could interpret and and. And used to support it, the the issue really is their foundational worldview of of materialism or naturalism that then goes on to say, okay, well, let's explain how this could have happened without a creator, rather than how this points to a creator, mm-hmm. um, which is what somebody that believes in God would say. So, really, uh, there's also so there's evidence for the Big Bang theory, and we can see that in the way that things are are moving away from us. But there's also evidences for other theories that a lot of times people make fun of, like evolution. Um, I don't know, Sean, if you knew that there was evidence for evolution or not, but there is. <laughs> yeah, and and sometimes it's the difference between evolution with a capital E and evolution with the lowercase e is kind of the way I think <laughs> about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we can talk a little bit about the different types of evolution and what there is evidence for, what there isn't evidence for. I want to I want to grab a hold of something you said there, James, though, about uh-huh. things being things being. Uh, I forget exactly how you said it. The idea that uh, these theories are are dumb. Mm-hmm. I think that can be a big mistake for us as Christians. Is just to assume that everyone who doesn't believe in in, in God or the creation account or young Earth are all uh, morons. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, these people are, are intelligent, but it's like you said, it's, it's their, their base belief, their worldview, where they're beginning from, uh, causes them to interpret the evidences that they find in a particular way. makes me think of the, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the blind men and the elephant, you know, that story or poem where Mm -hmm. each person has a hold of a different, element of the elephant and they're saying an elephant is you know like a tree because of its leg or it's like a fan because of its ear and so on Mm -hmm. and uh and they don't have the full picture and so they're just doing the best that they can 
I think it does a great disservice to hmm, to the Christian argument, if you want to say it that way, to just to act arrogant and and to assume everyone else is just dumber than I am because I have (laughs) uh, the biblical worldview. So I think we should be careful about that. Yeah, I mean, I I think we should be grateful that we have what we do. But yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. I very much agree that we need to be careful not to be dismissive or because if there is absolutely no evidence or there is nothing at all backing it up, then there's a pretty good chance that people wouldn't believe it. Now, that's kind of speaking with a broad brush, Mm -hmm. but even though there is, you could say there is evidence for things, it doesn't mean that 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 clinches it and that that means that the Big Bang Theory, really we believe in a a version of the Big Bang Theory. We believe that on creation week, God spoke Mm -hmm. the universe into existence during, you know, at a specific time, specific place. So that actually lines up. Where we differ from a lot of people that believe in that believe in the Big Bang theory and say that's how the universe came about is they they believe that it's uncaused. Mm-hmm. They believe that it was it just spontaneously happened mm-hmm. and everything popped into existence. Well, that that is a bit of an issue, and they have different ways of of getting around it. And I I'm not going to act like I'm an expert in the different <laughs> arguments for the Big Bang theory, mm-hmm. but just in a general way, everything that exists has a cause. We have children because there are parents. Mm-hmm. There are baby cows because there are bigger cows. <laughs> yeah. We There are trees because there were other trees that made seeds for those trees to exist. So you can kind of trace everything back and there's like everything has a cause. And so it makes sense that even the universe would have to have a cause. Mm-hmm. Because everything else that's ever existed has had a cause. Mm-hmm. But then at that point, a lot of of naturalists or materialists, they would say, well, now this doesn't have a cause. This just popped into existence out mm-hmm. of nothing. Mm-hmm. That's there again. There's maybe a bit more nuance that's being missed in that argument. But I think that probably works um, if that if that's not accurate or if there's more nuance. I'd like to hear from from listeners. But mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's that's really the difference. So in a sense, we do believe in the Big Bang Theory. We just don't believe that it was uncaused. Mm-hmm. We believe that it wasn't just a big explosion, that it was, uh, that it happened during creation week. And yeah, and I'm not sure why, why everything is, is um, why everything is, why these galaxies are moving away from each other so fast. And I mean, part of it is because the universe is expanding, uh, which is kind of an interesting thing to think about, that not only is something moving away from me, the space and time uh, between me and it are actually expanding as well. So anyway, <laughs> right? <laughs> maybe that's what we can cause for our for our middle aged weight gain is is uh, we're literally expanding due to space and time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so anyway, that is that's really uh, kind of the main thing about the Big Bang versus creation is that everything has to have a cause, and actually the Big Bang gives us evidence that there is a creator. So one of the main things that the anthropic principle talks about is the fact that the universe is fine-tuned. And a lot of times you hear the idea of scientific laws. So uh, the laws of nature you might hear. Um, So everything obeys the laws of nature. And some of those are like the speed of light and gravity, gravity, uh, the the force of electromagnetism, the strong and weak nuclear forces, which are all the, the, those are kind of the four main forces that make up everything. Um, Mm -hmm. Each of those is fine tuned to a high degree of precision that if they were just a little bit different, that it wouldn't work. So for instance, if the strength of gravity is actually really important for making stars work. So stars, uh, they're, they're big, huge things of, of gas and due to gravity, Gravity pulls these gases closer and closer together to where they heat up in the center of stars and they're able to make nuclear fusion work. So hydrogen fuses to make helium and then helium can fuse to make silicon and carbon and different different elements um, in the cores of stars. But that would not work if there wasn't gravity. And 
people that are much smarter than me and study this more than me say that if gravity was a little bit weaker, that stars would not have been able to form mm-hmm. quite like they have. Um, there wouldn't be enough strength of gravity to pull these gases together to make them fuse, to give off the energy that we need. And if it was too strong, that stars would burn through their fuel much more quickly and basically would, would they'd run out of fuel much more quickly. So and There's not much room for, for air there. Yeah. And also something I didn't mention, but Stephen Hawking, who was an astrophysicist, he's probably one of the more well-known astrophysicists. I don't believe he was a Christian, but I think, from what I understand, I was discussing this with somebody recently, he might have had some kind of uh, deistic or theistic beliefs, but he definitely wasn't a Christian per se. And he said that if the Big Bang had expanded faster or slower by only one part in a hundred billion, then life would not have been possible. Mm. So Mm -hmm. I did not dive to the depth to fact check that, but (laughs) I I do believe he did say that. Now, I'm not quite sure what that all means, but that's that's kind of fascinating. Yeah. There again, we don't believe in an uncaused Big Bang, but we do believe that in a sense, what scientists call the Big Bang was caused by God. So in in the billions of years view uh, since the Big Bang, the the odds of everything lining up to to today so that we can have everything that we have life and even technology and and uh intelligence to be able to communicate and so on is is so incredibly small that we can not fathom but you can go mm-hmm. further back than that and and imagine what are the odds that that explosion, that Big Bang that initiated everything, could happen in in billions and billions and trillions of years, and it becomes even even more mm, impossible? We could say that everything could line up from that initial point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then, so I, like I said, we we're going to start with kind of the big and kind of zoom in a little bit smaller. The next thing I want to look at is the solar system. So we we live in the solar system, and of course we live on Earth, but we are part of a neighborhood, you could say, of, of planets in the solar system. And the solar system is does seem to be designed for life. And the, the main thing is the star uh, in the center of the solar system, the sun. It's kind of the right size, um, the right size for... For life, if it was a lot smaller, we would have to orbit a lot closer to it to to have the amount of of energy, the amount of heat, Mm -hmm. so that water wouldn't be frozen on the surface. Um, And if we did that, that would cause a number of different issues. Yeah. Like um, the the Earth would become tidally locked to the sun, so that way the same same face of the Earth would always face toward the sun as it it went around. Mm -hmm. Very similar to how the moon is tidally locked to the Earth. So you always see the same same side of the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, that could actually happen in the solar system if if the sun was a lot smaller and fainter, and the sun and then the Earth would have to be a lot closer. That would that would happen, which means that the one side would be uh, eternally baked, and the other yeah. side would be eternally frozen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not eternally, but um, <laughs> yeah, right. Wouldn't be able to transfer the heat around. So, and also the sun is very stable; like it doesn't have any. It does fluctuate. It's got an 11-year uh, fluctuation, and you can see that in difference in sunspots and things like that, mm-hmm. which that's actually due to the magnetic field of the sun, but we're not going to get into that today. But it, it does have slight energy fluctuations of just a couple percent, I believe. It's not very much at all. A lot of other stars in other solar systems, you know, we can we can watch those with our telescopes, and those fluctuate a good bit more mm-hmm. than than what the sun does. So there's a thing called variable stars that is a, a very common thing in the universe. And we can actually see those. They have a very consistent where they they get brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter, and then they get dim, and then they get bright, and then they get dim. But that's not how the sun is. It's very consistent. If we had if if the if the sun would get ten percent brighter and then drop down and get ten percent dimmer, then that fluctuation would cause it to get really hot and then really cold on the Earth, but that doesn't happen. So we would just have a cataclysmic environment all the time. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, it would um with with that huge fluctuation in temperature, it would cause all sorts of problems like yeah, the earth would freeze solid and there would be, you know, there like all the water would be frozen and then maybe um a lot of the water would evaporate which would actually cause runaway greenhouse effect mm-hmm. um and then we would almost turn into something more like Venus. Yeah. Where yeah. it's uh, like hot enough to melt lead on the surface and <laughs> <laughs> so difficult for us to live. Yeah, not conducive to life, to say the least. Also, the sun doesn't have a lot of flares, so it does have, there are solar flares, there are times where it gives off a huge amount of energy, a huge amount of particles, but those are, for the most part, relatively small and not terribly dangerous. There are other stars that have a lot more flares, and those things put off so much energy and so much radiation that it would just basically uh, strip away our atmosphere Mm -hmm. and just kill us with radiation Yeah, um, if we would get hit by one of those bigger solar flares from another star. So it's it's the perfect star for consistent output of energy for life. Mm-hmm. Um, another reason that the solar system is suitable for life, and there's many more that I'm not getting into here. We don't have time. But another one is that Jupiter is kind of the vacuum cleaner of the solar system. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think when it was... Uh, maybe sometime in the 90s, there was a comet called Shoemaker-Levy, which I believe is named after the astronomers that found it. And it was going through the solar system, and it went around Jupiter, and it was kind of pulled pulled in pieces because uh, comets are not, they're not like uh, a solid chunk of rock. They're more like snowballs. Mm-hmm. They're kind of held together, but they're not held together very tightly. And it was pulled, pulled in pieces, and then its next time around, it actually hit Jupiter. Okay. They believe that there are a lot of other other asteroids and comets that would have actually come into the inner solar system and possibly posed a danger to Earth, you know, could have hit Earth. And if we got hit by a comet, it would be like uh, the biggest atomic bomb we've ever mm-hmm. uh, detonated, multiplied by like a thousand or something like that. Right. It might not wipe out all life, but it would probably wipe out the life on uh, at least close to a continent, mm-hmm. almost. So anyway, it, it's able to get rid of those dangerous rocks and comets in in space. And I saw a picture just in the last couple of weeks of a line of craters on one of the moons of Jupiter. So it, it's a it's kind of amazing. It's these these craters, just a line of craters, maybe eight to ten long, mm-hmm. and they believe that what that was caused by was by a comet or an asteroid that was pulled, you know, pulled in pieces by getting too close to Jupiter, and then it ended up hitting one of its moons. And it's just this perfect line of of craters. You know, it looks like somebody had a had a paintball gun and was just hitting <laughs> it with with asteroids. That's <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. So Jupiter is just another variable to throw in, but there mm-hmm. are countless of them that just keep making it more and more unlikely that uh, mm-hmm. this could be by chance. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And if it does, if it doesn't pull apart an asteroid or comet and suck it up, it'll sometimes its gravity will allow it to eject it from the solar system. It'll kind of whip around it and just shoot it out of the solar system as well. <laughs> so that's another another reason. Mm-hmm. Okay, zooming in a little bit closer to the Earth, we of course the Earth is the right distance from the Sun, and that's a that's a common common thing that I think most people know. If it was too far away, it would be like Mars; it would be cold and and frozen. If it'd be too close, it'd be more like Mercury or Venus; it would be hot, where there wouldn't be the possibility for life. But it's in this in this zone around. The sun, it's called the Goldilocks zone <laughs> from, the, <laughs> okay. from the story, uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Yeah. Um, it's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Kind of like the, the porridge. Mm-hmm. There is one thing that people do do kind of uh, get wrong. I've heard it before, and that is, you know, if if the earth was like one mile closer to the sun or one mile further away or 100 miles closer or 100 miles further away, it would freeze that it's on this razor's edge of distance from the sun. And that's actually not true because the orbit of the earth is elliptical. Um, it's a little bit squashed, kind of mm-hmm. egg shaped. It varies by several million miles throughout the entire orbit. Mm-hmm. It's more about looking at the whole of the universe and seeing 
on a on on the scale of the universe the amount that it moves is basically nothing but when yeah, you it's very small <laughs> when you get a little bit closer then it uh yeah a million miles yeah. is no, quite I mean, a it, lot it, <laughs> yeah i mean it it does move in in the entire distance from the sun it does move by a couple percent in mm-hmm. and out yeah i think it moves from like 91 or so million miles to about 94 million miles mm-hmm. so a lot of times you hear the average is 93 million mm-hmm. but it's not a perfectly circular orbit it's a little bit oval and so it, it does move in and out, but it's not a huge amount. What's interesting, though, is I might have mentioned this in a previous episode, but during our winter, uh, the northern hemisphere winter is about when it's at its closest point to the sun. <laughs> okay. Um, and then during our summer is about when it's at its furthest point from the sun. It's just just the way it worked out. Mm-hmm. So that, I guess that means that when y'all have winter, you're actually further away from the sun, and when you have summer down in the southern hemisphere you're actually closer. Mm. Summers are hotter and winters are colder here. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly um if that's the case or not, but <laughs> you know, the 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 seasons are caused by the tilt of the earth, they're not caused by the distance to the sun, mm-hmm. although it probably affects it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay, so another thing is that the earth rotates. We all know that. The sun comes up in the morning, um or you could say the <laughs> The earth rotates toward the sun in the morning. Right. (laughs) And if, so some of the other planets have days that are much longer. So for instance, uh, Venus has a day that's like 200 and some days long, I think. Mm -hmm. Something like that. It's just, it's rotating really slowly. It's actually rotating in the opposite direction of what earth is. If you look uh, from from the North Pole and you look down on top of earth, it's rotating counterclockwise. Mm Mm-hmm. And I believe pretty much all the other planets are as well. But although Uranus is kind of a strange example because it's rotating on its side. (laughs) Oh, okay. But, yeah. But Venus is rotating clockwise very, very slowly, Hmm. uh, which is is kind of strange because everything else rotates in that counterclockwise Mm -hmm. direction. Mm -hmm. But if it would rotate much more slowly, that would allow... If if Earth would rotate much more slowly, it would allow heat to kind of build up on that side of the Earth, making it much hotter, boiling away the water on that side of the Earth, and while the other side would freeze. But the night-day cycle is, is, is long enough that things warm up, but not so long that they get too hot, and then mm-hmm. they also don't get too cold. So that's an important um, important way that earth is designed to allow this this heating and cooling to be the right amount Mm -hmm. the next thing we want to look at is the magnetic field so the earth has a magnetic field and it's not it's not the only planet that has a magnetic field Uh, jupiter actually has a magnetic field that's much much stronger than earth Mm -hmm. but earth's magnetic field is much stronger than any of the other inner planets so mercury venus and mars all have either no magnetic field or an extremely weak magnetic field. And this doesn't seem that important, I mean, (laughs) other than compasses. But the reason why it's important is that the the sun gives off huge amounts of of charged particles, mostly protons, I believe, but it throws off a bunch of these particles and other types of radiation. And some of these could be very dangerous, but we have this magnetic field that it interacts with charged particles and kind of deflects them. It's almost like a deflector shield, basically. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it allows, if if there's anything coming from the sun, instead of coming down and hitting the Earth's surface or stripping away the Earth's atmosphere, instead it kind of gets deflected around the Earth so it doesn't come down to the Earth. Now, a little bit of those particles do come down to the upper atmosphere, especially in the northern and southern poles, which is what causes the northern and southern lights. Mm-hmm. So if 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 all the particles could hit the Earth's atmosphere, it could actually, uh, they believe that what would happen is it would strip away the Earth's atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So Mars, uh, it's a lot smaller than Earth, but it's, it's in a sense, it's the most Earth-like planet that there is. Venus, Venus has a super thick atmosphere and is really, really hot. But Mars, I mean, it has ice and the ice, like it has ice caps. The temperature is really cold, but it's not nearly as extreme as Venus is hot. Mm-hmm. But it has almost no atmosphere. And they believe what happened is 
that as the as the magnetic field got weaker, and also because Mars has much less gravity, it wasn't able to hold on to its atmosphere, mm-hmm. and so it wasn't held on as tightly. And then you also had the solar wind kind of stripping away the gas molecules to where there was almost nothing left. So now Mars has less than one percent the atmosphere of Earth. Okay. And it's not getting better. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not getting better. Uh, one thing that's fascinating, though, about Mars is, of course, we've sent rovers and we have orbiters and different things around Mars. In fact, there are more spacecraft on or around Mars than any other planet. Um, and it seems like there's very strong evidence that it used to have liquid water on the surface. Uh, obviously, it's no more. So it really makes me wonder what happened that it lost all of its water. When did it have water? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, but mm-hmm. now it's it's very dry. It's very cold. It's a very dead place. And you know they've been looking for evidences of uh, life, and they have yet to find any. I don't know if they will or not. Um, <laughs> yeah, I somewhat doubt it, but I'm not going to say that it's impossible. I mean, God most certainly could have could have put life on there if he wanted to. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that's interesting about the magnetic field is the magnetic field is pretty rapidly getting weaker. Um, on the order of centuries, we can, we can actually see the magnetic field getting weaker. Now the magnetic field does go through different cycles, but it seems like the fact that it's getting weaker means that, um, you could say that might be an evidence for the earth, not being billions of years old, Mm -hmm. being much, much younger, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to stake but so much on that evidence, but it's kind of interesting that um, it seems like it might point toward a younger, a younger universe. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then getting in a little bit closer, um, so we already talked about the the seasons and the tilt causing the seasons. So the seasons are an important part of what makes Earth habitable. It helps to move heat around the, the globe. Um, if it was just pointing straight up, there would be no seasons. There would always be the same amount of energy from the sun hitting all points of the, well, I mean, the, uh, the northern poles would be getting much, much less, and the equator would be getting more over the course of the year. Mm-hmm. But the fact that the fact that there's that tilt means that, you know, the northern hemisphere gets heated a bit more than the southern hemisphere does, and that cycling, it actually helps to, to, um, circulate the heat and move the heat so that way the the southern and northern poles they're very cold they're not habitable really Mm -hmm. but if if there was no seasons they would be much much colder than they currently are like i don't know how much colder but they would be a lot colder and that means the equator would be so hot that it would almost be uninhabitable probably Mm -hmm. there'd be a very narrow section of of places to live above yeah like between the equator and the polar caps yeah, like I'm not sure what it would be, but it would probably be less inhabitable around the equator and definitely the northern latitudes like Canada and Russia and places like that where people live would likely be much less habitable if they didn't have that period of time during the year where they are getting a bunch of light from the sun during the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be kind of the same all the time. Uh, another thing that points toward uh, a creator is our moon. It's different in that it's much larger in relation to its planet size. So, mm-hmm. for instance, Mars has two moons, Phobos and Deimos, and they are both really, really small. I think Phobos is the bigger one, and it's maybe, oh, I can't remember my numbers, um, like 20 kilometers across, maybe. So that would be about 12 miles. You could run across the moon. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting is because it's so small, its gravity is so weak that if you could if you were like an Olympic level jumper, you could jump hard enough that you could just escape. Like that would be escape velocity. You could just zip off the moon. (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you would jump like just, just a moderate jump, you would leave, leave the surface of the moon, go way up, like hundreds of feet up and then come down. (laughs) So, but, but because the gravity is so weak, you would come down very gently. So you wouldn't come down really that, like it wasn't like you'd come down and, and break your legs. You'd come down pretty softly as More well. More like an Alice in Wonderland fall. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> um, but it's it's much bigger, which what, what importance of that is, is that it has a decent amount of gravitational influence on the Earth. 
mm-hmm. and it doesn't pull on the earth that much, but it is enough to do do two main things. The one is that it helps stabilize the tilt of the earth, and I don't quite understand how this all works, but if there's just a little bit of variation in the tilt of the earth, so it doesn't always tilt exactly the same amount. Sometimes it tilts a little bit less, sometimes it tilts a little bit more. Now this is over the course of thousands of years that this that this variation happens. Um, it's not like year to year, mm-hmm. but they have done calculations that if you would remove the moon, that there would be a much greater variance in tilt. And if that would happen, it would kind of mess up our seasons mm-hmm. and cause more extreme temperatures. So that's a really important influence the moon has. Also, the, the tides are really important. The tides help to kind of, you could almost think of like circulating or moving the water on the earth. Mm-hmm which helps to move around nutrients and oxygen and heat and different things to make the oceans more habitable for organisms. It's a little bit like being in a big or being in a bathtub. If you let the water mm-hmm. rest for a while, you might have a thin amount of hot water at the top and yeah. <laughs> cold or cooling water at the bottom. Yeah. And so you need mm-hmm. to slosh it around to keep things uh, yeah. more or less equal. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and there's also there there's a huge circulation of heat within the oceans, and I'm not sure what it's all driven by. I'm not uh, Earth science is probably my weakest area in science, <laughs> but it's driven by temperature and it's also driven by salinity. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, one that a lot of people here on the East Coast would be familiar with would be the Gulf Stream. Mm-hmm. Um, would be the big main current that goes kind of up the eastern seaboard. The Gulf Stream is carrying heat from the Gulf of Mexico up toward northern Europe, so Iceland and Great Britain and France. And if you look at the latitude of those of of northern Europe, like you look at the latitude of London, London does not get very much snow. It's pretty mild. It really does not get that cold during the winter. But if you look at London, it's at almost the exact same latitude as calgary alberta yeah (laughs) now i've never been to calgary but from what i understand it's fairly much a frozen wasteland during the winter um because it's in the middle of the continent it doesn't have that heat getting moved up there by the oceans one thing uh, this is another evidence of design this is a really small thing but the design of the water molecule makes it so that it can it takes a lot of energy to heat up water or to cool down water what that means is it makes it really good at carrying heat. So it can carry huge amounts of heat from the equator up to the northern latitudes, so that way northern Europe is not frozen. Yeah. And then it can carry cooler water from the higher latitudes down to the equator to help keep that a little bit cooler. So if you're beside the ocean, your temperature tends to be much more moderate. So if you look at like if you look at the temperature here in the Shenandoah Valley, it gets fairly cool during the winter, like it might get down to zero or even in negative digits occasionally. Um, and sometimes, you know, usually we have a day or so during the summer where it gets up to about 100 degrees, a little bit below. But it's a relatively moderate climate. Mm-hmm. If you go in the middle of the continent, so you go to Kansas or North or South Dakota um, or Oklahoma, not only do they have hotter summers, they have much colder winters mm-hmm. where it gets down to like negative 20. And that is because even though we're a couple hundred miles from the ocean, there's still enough influence from air currents from the ocean that it keeps places near the ocean a bit more moderate. So you have all of these things working together, distance from the sun, mm-hmm. the sun being stable and its right size, uh, magnetic field, tilt of the earth, the moon stabilizing mm-hmm. that, pulling on the tides, all of it is one big HVAC system for the for the earth. <laughs> Basically, although although when I'm outside mowing my yard and it's 95 degrees and uh, 80% humidity, it doesn't feel like there's much of an HVAC system going on. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean at least it's not um I think on the like the equator of Mars during its summer I think it can get up to where it's warm enough that you can almost go around with like short sleeves on. Oh, okay. Like between 30 and 50 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Um, but that's kind of unusual. Most of the time it's like negative 20, <laughs> negative 30, negative 40. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's actually the, the temperatures on Mars for the most part are moderate enough that we have clothes we could deal with. We could deal with the temperatures. Hmm. However, the lack of atmosphere is a very big problem. In other words, um, the whole needing to breathe is <laughs> the whole needing to breathe thing. And like, if you would step outside, if <laughs> yeah, if it was like a nice warm uh, Martian summer day, and you would step outside in your short sleeves, well, the water on your body and the water in your eyes would start boiling away <laughs> because it's so little pressure. Which, speaking of atmosphere, the atmosphere of Earth is also designed very much for for life. Uh, we talked a little bit about all these things coming from the sun uh, that can cause damage or strip away the atmosphere. Um, the Earth has ozone, which ozone is a type of oxygen. Most of the oxygen or the oxygen we breathe is O2, so it's two oxygens that form a molecule. But ozone is O3, and it's formed high up in the atmosphere. And what it does is, especially ultraviolet light, when it comes into the atmosphere, it hits an ozone molecule, and its energy is absorbed and breaks apart the molecule. So the ozone layer is very thin. Uh, I'm not sure how much ozone there is in the atmosphere, but it's very little. But it is enough to block almost all ultraviolet rays. And I think we've talked about this on other podcasts, but there are different types of light. So there's radio waves, microwaves, infrared, which we feel is heat. Um, visible light, and then above that is light that has more energy and can cause damage to our DNA, which can cause cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and ultraviolet is one of those types of light. But that is blocked by, by, the, um, uh, by our atmosphere. And not only that, but there is... So whenever they want to make an X-ray telescope, they have to actually take the telescope and put it in space... <laughs> Because x-rays can't make their way to the surface of the Earth. They get blocked by the atmosphere. Oh, okay. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> and, and also the same way with gamma rays. They, they do have x-ray telescopes and gamma ray telescopes. But I believe they pretty much have to put them in space because it gets blocked by the atmosphere. Hmm. Um, I did so not that's, know that. You know, atmosphere is, is worth more than just oxygen for breathing. It blocks this dangerous radiation from our sun and also from other stars in the Milky Way or even stars in other uh, galaxies are sending out this radiation that can be damaging to our cells, but it's pretty much just getting blocked by the atmosphere. Uh, Another thing that the atmosphere does, just to kind of wrap up the atmosphere here, is if there are any, we talked about how Jupiter helps helps to get rid of these bigger asteroids and, um, and comets, but there are still plenty of little space rocks that are floating around Earth, uh, kind of in the vicinity of Earth's orbit. Some of them are really small, like dust. Some of them are a couple pounds. Some of them are either you know hundreds, thousands of pounds in, in weight. But the atmosphere is able to block those by basically burning them up. So when, when an asteroid hits the Earth's atmosphere, it's going so fast that it it heats up and starts burning up. And so most of the rocks and dust and, and meteorites that hit the Earth's atmosphere, they get burned up before they even hit the atmosphere or they break up in pieces so that way they're much smaller. We're not having these couple thousand pound rocks hitting the surface of the Earth at you know 10 kilometers per second, mm-hmm. <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, if you look at the, at the moon, um, you can't see it great with your naked eye, but even if you get out some binoculars or a small telescope, you can see the surface of the moon is completely covered with craters. Mm-hmm. And that's because the moon has no atmosphere to to prevent them from hitting it. Um, that's what would happen if the Earth had no atmosphere. And mm-hmm. it's kind of the same thing with Mars. There are huge numbers of craters on Mars as well, although not quite as many as as the moon, because it it does have a little bit of atmosphere, but not nearly as much as Earth. So... There again, that's another reason that the Earth seems to be designed for life. There's just enough stuff in the air that it creates friction, and that friction burns the stuff up. Mm-hmm. I was just reading an article this week about uh, some scientists or group of scientists that are uh, going through Europe, 
uh, I think they're in around London right now, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And they're collecting dust from the tops of cathedrals, old, old buildings. Mm -hmm. uh, dust that is uh, that they're finding space dust in, I suppose you could say. <laughs> and yeah. they're doing numerous experiments to... Uh, I'm not exactly sure what they're hoping to find. Maybe they don't even know what they're hoping to find, but they're doing some some dating and uh, and testing about how the atmosphere works on some of those things. So that was kind of fascinating to me. The buildings are are old enough and then also tied to specific eras so they can do comparison between different buildings on, based on the space dust they find on them. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay, so I said I was going to be going from big to small, but now I'm kind of zooming back out a little bit and kind of going back to the moon. Um, Sean, I guess you, did you see the 2017 solar eclipse? I did, yep. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Where Did you see the total eclipse or did you just see a partial? I think I saw the total eclipse. I was up on top of, uh, I was actually at Christian Light and we went out on the roof. Yeah. And... So okay. I'm pretty yeah, well, sure I saw the whole thing. Yeah, no, you didn't see it. Uh, that wasn't the total eclipse. That was still partial. Um, you weren't. In oh, the path that's of right. Totality. Because we. That's right. Because we were at the wrong place. Yeah, or, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I traveled all the way to Kentucky, um, like eight plus hours of driving, I think, to mm -hmm. get to where there would be. And yeah, there were some clouds that covered the sun just a little bit before totality happened, but thankfully they moved away, and it was. Uh, one of the more incredible experiences I've ever, I've ever seen. The solar eclipses they they happen. A couple of them happen per year. Not all of them are total. Some are just partial, and some are what are called annular eclipses, where the moon is a lot closer to the Earth in its orbit, and so it is not big enough to completely cover the sun. So you can kind of see like a ring of fire around the outside of the of the moon. I've never mm -hmm. seen one of those, but I was there in 2017. Solar eclipses are very unusual in the solar system. There are, which, I mean, there are eclipses in the solar system. So, for instance, one of the Mars rovers actually saw one of the Mars moons going in front of the sun, but because it was so small, it only covered just part of the sun, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is the moon is 400 times closer to us than the sun, or you could say mm -hmm. the sun is 400 times further away than the moon. Um, but it's also 400 times smaller. <laughs> so that means okay. <laughs> that it is perfectly sized to cover up the sun, you know, about every, every, I think it's, yeah, around twice a year that there's a solar eclipse somewhere on the earth. Mm -hmm. And it just perfectly covers it up. Uh, not too much, not too little. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it covers it up just perfectly. So you can actually see the Corona of the sun, which is the, the outer, the very much outer atmosphere of the sun, which is kind of these tendrils that are, that are going out from the sun. You can't see it any other time, um, unless you have a special type of telescope that can kind of block out the sun, the middle of the sun. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that sort of thing is actually really helpful in helping us discover things about the, the solar system. So for instance, we first saw the element helium on the sun. We didn't see it on Earth. We saw it in the sun first mm -hmm. before we saw it on Earth, which is why it's called helium. You know, helium, helios, uh, that comes from a uh, Greek word for sun, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it also has helped to confirm different theories like Einstein's theory of relativity. That was determined using a solar eclipse to see how the positions of stars moved. Also, the distance from from um, the sun to the earth was calculated using solar eclipses. So all these things were only possible if if you have... No, was it a solar eclipse? I think that might have actually been the transit of Venus across oh, yeah. the sun. I, I think you're right anyway, about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but they, they're, very, they're very useful in scientific investigations. Um, and so it doesn't really... It's not really a proof of design... It's more just a, a really strange coincidence. <laughs> um, you know, is it a coincidence or is it just a place where God could show his glory? Um, it's, it's, it's almost like, you know, the, the sun is there all the time. Uh, we don't even think about it. It's so bright we can't really look at it. But there's this one moment, and a lot of people will never see one of these, but 
there's a good chance that you can if you travel just a little ways during your lifetime. And it's almost like in that moment, you can all of a sudden feel that you are on this planet, part of the solar system, part of something bigger. You're not just like in your own little world doing your own little thing. It's like for those couple minutes, like the blinders have been taken off and you're revealed what's the structure of the universe. Mm -hmm. Um, Sounds kind of grandiose, but that's (laughs) that's kind of what it feels like. (laughs) Puts things into perspective. Yeah. So is it is it actually a coincidence or was it designed? It seems really amazing that (laughs) the only planet in the solar system that's inhabited is the only one that has this perfect setup for solar eclipses to actually work. Yeah, (laughs) that's pretty amazing. Uh, Like almost an hour ago, you brought (laughs) up this idea of evolution and uh, said we would get back to it. And uh, I had at the beginning of the episode mentioned (laughs) how many episodes (laughs) does it take to make a series uh, yeah, I think both of those things are coming into play here where our episode has evolved <laughs> and I think we're going to uh, need to split off into making this into a series. I would like to talk about uh, things like the origin of life. How does evolution work? Uh, you mentioned that evolution isn't just a, th- a theory. It's a f- uh, how did you say that? That uh, it's a fact or a- that, that there is that. That there is evidence for evolution, yeah. You could say. I want to be careful not to, mm-hmm. to uh, enrage you by my use of the word theory again. Yeah, yeah, you better be careful. <laughs> and then uh, I also have some questions about what do we do with these evidences that that uh, that scientists find that we don't really have explanations for uh, based on the Bible. Like, there's not a a chapter and verse that we can go to that tell us uh, what happened to dinosaurs or that sort of thing. So I think we're going to have to uh, wrap it up here and bring up some of those things in another episode if you're if you're game for that. Sure. <laughs> One thing I did think about earlier on with regard to the Big Bang Theory was that I think the Bible somewhat talks about the phenomenon of the expanding universe at least and that's in Revelation 20, verse 11, where, where John said that he saw the earth, and the, hev- the earth and the heavens fleeing from the presence of God because there was no place for them. And so I just, <laughs> from that, can picture God at the center of creation, we could say, at the moment of creation. And because of the reverence uh, for God's power that creation felt that it began at that moment to to flee from his presence. I know that it's uh, maybe a bit tenuous uh, trying to throw that in for uh, the Big Bang Theory there, but mm-hmm. I think there could be something to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was having a similar thought there about splitting this into multiple episodes because, yeah, we uh, I didn't even cover all of my notes talking about the universe, the solar system, the earth, the atmosphere. There's a lot of stuff I skipped over. And we haven't even gotten to, yeah, like you said, the origin of life, uh, information, DNA, and other kind of little molecular little molecular machines that we have inside of us that, that give evidence for a creator. So, yeah, I think there's a lot more to go through. So I think it makes sense to have another episode. But I do think we, we're able to give uh, the listener some things that when you meet someone in, in Walmart that you can... Say, well, have you thought about this? Uh, uh, the odds of these various things lining up. One thing that I find interesting about the scientific community is how often they use the word design, uh, maybe without even realizing it, that this thing is designed in such a way that uh, that is perfectly suited to its environment or so on perfectly suited for life and uh, just using the word design I think implies (laughs) something that uh, perhaps the scientist doesn't always uh, take into account that there has to be a designer so uh, thank you again James I know you 
this is one of your passions, but you are putting effort into uh, preparing. I sit back and and ponder and make notes and don't say a whole lot sometimes, but I'm <laughs> really enjoying this series and. I guess we have now become uh, a science podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even trying to get this to happen. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, we'll come back hopefully to the next episode. I'm, I am I, I was just thinking about that. I'm not sure if we want to promise that the very next one is going to be going with a series or if we want to do something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'll have to be behind the scenes. But uh, we will come back to come back to the series, come back to this topic and try to look at some more, yeah, some more of these evidences of of uh, of a creator in uh, some of the more smaller things of life. Do you have anything that you can uh, close this out with here? Hmm. Or should we just put a big bang here at the end? <laughs> Maybe we should do that. <laughs> oh, that would be funny. <laughs>